Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode, LRV Health's Keith Figlioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry. Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. I'm here with our host, Keith Figlioli of LRV Health. Hello, Keith. How are you, sir? I am good, Tom. Yourself? I am doing great. You've got an interesting interview with Kevin Ban, the CMO of Walgreens. But uh, I had a, an off-topic question for you today that's related to, to healthcare. You speak with a lot of healthcare providers, and we hear a lot of stories in the news about hospitals having difficulty retaining nurses and, and physicians being overworked and just this whole COVID thing sort of overwhelming our healthcare provider or healthcare system. I'm curious, does has this impacted how you look at healthcare? Have staffing plays become more important? What are you hearing from healthcare executives at these at these provider groups, and has it affected what you're doing at LRV Health at all? Is this an issue that you're kind of including in your investment thesis? Yeah, I think I mean it's for our investment thesis. It's been around for a while. This is not something new for us. Right. Um, in terms of you know we're we're we were the first investor in a company called IntelliCare which is in the nurse staffing side. And we've been focused on this issue for a while. I think what COVID has done is put a major spotlight on it, to your point. Right. And you know, we were talking to a health system leader this past week, and they had said, this is how crazy this is right now, you know, between signing bonuses, between the uptick in hourly pay, between having to bring on temp staffing, this is a pretty you know, middle-of-the-road size health system they haven't added $100 million in operating wow. expenses going into next year because of the issues that are in the market. So I, and this is something that's not, I don't think, and I think a lot of people don't think is going to change. I think this no. is going to persist for a while because especially in nursing, if you look at the demographics of our nurse pool around, at least in this country, it's very kind of older skewed, kind of baby right. boomer skewed, if you will. Yep. And so many of them are retiring. And that's what you're seeing right now, too. They're accelerating retirement because it's such a difficult time, burnout, you know, taking care of this COVID situation. And so I think we're going to see more, not less than that. And ironically, you bringing this up, this was on my list to talk to Kevin about our guest for this episode, but we didn't have time. We got, <laughs> we got into so many other interesting topics that I'll have to bring him back to talk about this because he's been in the mix. I mean, he is an ED doc by training and has been part of clinical resource pools in a lot of different places, including Beth Israel here in Boston, and then some work even internationally that he brings up over in Italy. And then obviously was with Athena Health and then currently is the chief medical officer of Walgreens. So I think he's seen this issue too from a lot of different angles. Um, but but you're right to your point, major issue, going to be a continued issue. And I think you're going to see more and more different pools of clinical resources trying to be leveraged through technology and other means to get them to the top of their license and to get the best productivity levels because of the staffing issues that we're going to see over the next you know five to 10 years. And one of the things you talked to Kevin Ban about uh, in a great deal was community care and, and companies like Walgreens stepping up and providing more care. Is this going to, are those efforts going to help fill some of that gap or are they really touching a different part of patient care? Oh, I think, I think definitely he talks in about the middle of the interview about the pharmacist mm -hmm. and what, how should we best be using the pharmacist? 
you know, I mean, incredibly trained people, very smart people understand one of the biggest complexity issues we've got around chronic patients, which is managing their medications and med rec, med reconciliation. So he talks about that at length. And so I guess that's what I was alluding to earlier. I think you're going to start seeing different clinical resources. We've been talking to a variety of companies that are trying to leverage EMTs differently. Mm -hmm. But the pharmacist in this particular example is a perfect case of maybe leveraging them in a different way to to take care of. We're seeing it already. Like if you walk into, and I've done it, you walk into Walgreens and you go get a flu shot or whatever have you, you know, mostly times the pharmacists are rolling out of the back end and, you know, starting to help you talk you through all that stuff. So I think we're going to start seeing different shapes and forms of resources to your point to fill the gap. Yep. My son, my younger son just got his, uh, his first COVID vaccination at, uh, I believe it was a Target or a CVS uh, two weeks ago. So super convenient. They did a great job. How do you see in your conversation with Kevin? Did you did you get a sense of how you see things playing out in uh, in years to come? How things may may look a little different? Yeah, I think I mean we're we're, we're going to do a little bit of um, to give people a little bit of a preview. We're going to do a little bit of a retail series here where we've got Kevin and Walgreens in this episode. We're trying to get somebody uh, senior executive from CBS for the next episode, and then maybe we'll carry it on for another one or two. We'll see how it goes. But I think the most interesting part that he brought up, where you alluded to earlier, was this idea of what does community care look like and what does primary care plus medication management look like at the lower acuity levels and the ongoing day-to-day maintenance levels. And he talked a lot about their relationship and their investment with, with Village MD, um, which folks may or may not know. Um, Walgreens made a pretty significant investment to try to roll out Village MDs pretty much next to most of their Walgreens locations and a lot of different geos around the U.S., and so then that is the combination simplistically where Village MD is doing a lot of the primary care coordination. Mm-hmm. The Walgreens connection obviously can do a lot of the meds management and partnership with Village MD. And you have a really interesting combo that manages a good portion of the mid to lower acuity care. And then, you know, I, I asked him a tough question, which was then what? So as people get older and need more higher acuity care, does that then have Walgreens and Village MD have to build differentiated partnerships with various health systems in each one of their regions. You know, similar to what we've seen with even One Medical, um, at least here in Boston and a couple of other markets, where they've now partnered up the acuity ladder with um, different large healthcare systems in the market. And you could foresee a time. And, and I asked him this question. And I thought he had a good answer. It was kind of a non-answer, <laughs> where each market and each incumbent large player is partnered up with either a Walgreens or a CVS. I'm not so sure someone's going to be partnered up with both. Maybe they will. But the law of markets and the law of business, um, even though we're talking about a lot of nonprofits and for-profit mixed up here, I can see those be different lanes by which you have a differentiated relationship. So I'm a CVS customer and all my prescriptions go there. And they have a preferred relationship with Mass General Brigham. And I'm also a one medical primary care patient. And so you start seeing how does that all work in mm-hmm. time? Um, I do think that could take shape downstream. Interesting. That That is the way things tend to get sorted. But uh, it's a great conversation, an important one, because as you said, healthcare is changing and we certainly need the help. So uh, let's, uh, let's begin our interview with Kevin Ban, the Chief Medical Officer of Walgreens. 
All right. Well, welcome back to the Healthcare is Hard podcast. I'm pretty excited about this one. I've got uh, Dr. Kevin Ben, who has been a friend for a while, a skiing, another skiing buddy. I seem to have a theme on these podcasts, a lot of skiing buddies uh, that we try to get on here. But uh, Kevin and I have uh, had the pleasure of being able to ski out in Jackson Hole a couple of times with a healthcare event um, that I think we both appreciate a lot. But Kevin is the uh, chief medical officer at Walgreens. And so we're going to take the next couple of episodes to kind of examine the the retail lens side of things in healthcare and try to get a better perspective from people who are in it. And so, Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Keith, thanks for having me. It's sort of a different environment than we're used to here. Uh, I think I prefer, prefer Jackson Hole, but let's make this happen. Yeah, <laughs> over a drink and and no masks usually. So so now we are are separated by Zoom instances, but. Uh, Appreciate to have you on and to get the perspective, but I would love to start as we always start with sort of a little bit of background on yourself and obviously you're a doctor and sort of been in the space for a long period of time or, uh, and so wanted to get sort of a perspective, just sort of how you got here, you know, how, how did you end up where you ended up? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think I might just characterize it all by saying not all wandering is lost. <laughs> and I think I'll start with, probably something that was a big deal in my life, which was um, I was, you know, finishing high school and like most thinking about going on to college and and trying to figure out what that looked like. And, and instead of doing that, I took a year and, and did what now is sort of affectionately re- referred to as a gap year. And, and back in the day, cause this is like more than 30 years ago, that was called he's messing up his life year. And, uh, and I went to Italy and an exchange program, American Field Service, AFS. And, you know, it's funny, you can only put maybe your, your life and even your career together in retrospect. And um, I, I never would have imagined what an impact that would have had. Um, I went, lived in the northern part of Italy up in the Dolomites. So back to our skiing theme here, but importantly, sort of got a bigger view of the world. And, and, um, and, and then interestingly, later, uh, because I spoke Italian, met a woman who who became my wife, didn't meet her then. And her father uh, was at the time the the chairman of surgery at the University of Florence. And that, you know, I, I always say my wife and I fell in love over the course of time, but for my father-in-law and I, it was love at first sight. And that that sort of led to a relationship between Harvard medical faculty physicians. I had trained as you mentioned, um, in Boston, uh, in emergency medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And Italy was really working around a lot of problems, trying to figure out how to how to address a bunch of problems in the emergency department. And my father-in-law and I became sort of a, a conduit, putting together Harvard medical faculty physicians and the Tuscan government. And, and that ended up, Keith, in being just a really important experience for me. You know, I'd started coming together towards the end of my residency and then characterized the first eight years of my academic career at Beth Israel and Harvard. So that for me is a defining moment, uh, not only professionally, but personally, both, you know, both of my children were born in Florence. And so sort of one of those things, because I decided to do a gap year, you know, and here I am. Yeah. I was thinking about this this morning. It's like you have these little, uh, offshoot moments in your career and your life. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, that took me down this path, which probably shaped you because then you went on from there, you went to Athena. Was that the next step? 
You know, you know, it's it's funny because I, I think I'm just I'm interested in, in a lot of you know in parentheses too many things, and I was doing a, a bunch of different things. Actually, I, I I initially went into surgery before I went into emergency medicine, and then took a couple of years off. I only mention it because you know it really has been helpful in this past year of the pandemic. And in those those two years in between surgery and starting emergency medicine, I was I was an on air medical analyst, so I was learning how to communicate in bite sized packets. Like I I much prefer this format because at any point you can double click and we can go deep. But you know most of the time when you're being interviewed, it's like two minutes or three minutes, and you really have to learn how to deliver that. So so I was doing that throughout the entirety of my residency, and then finished the residency. Was you know most of my career was at Harvard, Beth Israel. It's funny because most people, especially in the commercial world, don't care much about that. They're like, you at Athena? And the truth is I was 16 years at, at Beth Israel. But what, had, what happened there, Keith, was that I got exposed to you know maybe the epitome of value-based care, which is a single-payer model in Italy. And, and you know, embarrassingly up front, we used to make fun of things that they would do that we now do because of value-based care. But I, you know, it's sort of like, I didn't even know I was learning about something that would become useful, but, but I was. And in, towards the end of, well, somewhere around 2008, 2009, we got involved in the Blue Cross Blue Shield AQC contracts. And quite honestly, no one in the group, in, in my group, was really that interested in trying to figure that out. And, and I was very interested because I'd seen some stuff in Italy and it sort of made sense to me in terms of what we were doing. And then that paved the way towards the Pioneer ACO. So what I would say is before I went to Athena, I got very involved in um, you know, the early days of value-based care and trying to think about outcomes and how could that be different than volume. And, and I think all of this is really, really fascinating in the pandemic where volume was nearly impossible to drive. So anyway, take this wherever you'd like to take it. So does that give you a perspective of saying, because this has been a fun debate lately, that VBC or value-based care is the way through, like you think, or is it one of many vehicles as the way through here in the States? You know, obviously different in Europe in the different type of setups that they have there, let alone Italy. But when you think about where we are here, maybe we can kind of double tap on that for a second, given your experience. You know, AQC was an interesting sort of experiment with Blue Cross Blue Shield Mass here, which was very successful. And we had actually Pat Gilligan who helped sort of create that on the podcast not too long ago. And so I'm just curious sort of how you think, like I, you know, I won't give you my opinion until you say it, but I ask everybody this question now, which is like, okay, is value-based care the thing? Is that what's going to save us here? I don't think of it as the thing. Um, It's just way too imperfect to be the thing. I do think about it like, hey, we're trying to get across this river. We all knew, know we need to get across the river to the other side and the, and, and the waters are torrential. And so we're kind of lily paddy. I don't know if that's not a term. You know, we're jumping from rock to rock to get across. So I think of where we are now is sort of just sort of one rock in that in that river that we're trying to get across. No, I don't think it's here. But what I will tell you, is, which is really fascinating to me, is that you know, I'm I'm just a typical doctor that up front I thought that it would all be about diagnosis and treatment and and that that's really what we needed to get right and and instead I learned it's it's about much more difficult things like you know social determinants of health and behavioral health and you know how do we how do we actually move people in in, in the right direction 
And I've seen just in changing a little bit the payer mo- the the payment model that you know we, we we can see improvement in outcome. What I would say though is that we really need to change the payment model. And what's interesting to me is I was out at Health Evolution Summit a couple of weeks ago. And Keith, maybe we should say, I think we both said before we started this podcast that we both have dogs. I have two of them. <laughs> My dogs have now decided that this is a perfect time to start wrestling. <laughs> if you hear any squeak barks, it's just my dog. And but, you'll hear mine pretty soon too. So maybe we won't even edit that out. We'll just keep I think it in, I, just, I think we roll with this. We just embrace <laughs> it. But um, what, what ended up happening at Health Evolution Summit, which was interesting, was that I heard a, a bunch of top healthcare executives who are leading healthcare systems say, hey, we had a really tough year, year and a half in the context of, of COVID. We need more risk so that we can almost de-risk, right? We, we, we can't be so beholden to value or fee-for-service that when there is no volume, we can't make it happen. So we need more risk, which is interesting because I've been looking at it really from an outcomes perspective, knowing that underlying it all was the financial component. And so people have said to me, well, how do you feel about that? Like now all of a sudden people are coming around and I'm, I'm just thrilled by it. Um, that people think, hey, we need to change the payment model because when we do that, that will drive different outcomes, which I'm okay with. Yeah. And that's a little bit of my bias now or my point of view on it is what I think is starting to become clear to folks is I think there's multiple ways through. I think, you know, to your point about reimbursement, it's going to take a spectrum of reimbursement programs to actually make this all work and to make this change. I, you know, if you would ask me this question three years, four years ago, I would have told you, yeah, just value-based care. That's the way to do it. Let's just keep marching to get 80 to hundred percent of all reimbursement that way. And that's how we're going to do it. I just don't envision a future. And I'm curious, this is more of a question back to you, like where it's all going to be value-based care. We just don't live in that environment. Like I, I don't think culturally, I mean, we can't even, you know, I saw the news this week, but the Biden administration talking about, um, you know, Medicare starting to negotiate their own prices differently and then potentially spilling that into the private market and all the hospitals like started going nuts. And so, you know, let alone the drug manufacturers. So we, we can't, we're just on that thread, let alone sort of wholesale changing everything I think is a, is a long, long. I agree with that 100%. I don't think we're there. I don't know if the term is culturally or, or even from a demographic perspective. I had some insight into that, which was really telling during the pandemic. And that is that we were working very closely with the federal government around testing. And we put together, you, you know, we put uh, an investment into Village MD, and I'm, I'm assuming at some point we'll we'll talk more about that. But why not put together primary care with pharmacy and testing into sort of a comprehensive model? It just made perfect sense. You know, someone has a symptom. Okay, it's not a diagnosis, and they need access to care. And so you have a you know healthcare provider who is able to assess that and decide whether or not a test is warranted. If so, that can happen you know seamlessly at Walgreens, and then there there can be a tight feedback to that physician because regardless of whether or not that COVID test is positive or negative, the person needs to be navigated through the system. You know what's going on here, and we brought that forward and really got pushback because in some ways it represented a vision that the administration did not have for what healthcare should look like. And that's exactly what I thought healthcare should look like. And so I I said to myself, it's just not the time, right? This is just not the moment. 
And it's like most things, you know, they're not events. We'd like to think of them, I think, as events, and they're not. They're processes. And we all contribute. I I think now I'm I'm channeling one of my mentors, Peter Rosen, in research, uh, which is there is no one definitive piece of research. It's all we all contribute a, a smidge, an ounce, and collectively it comes together to, you know, to weigh into something meaningful. And I think that's where we are. That's where it's going to be. The other thing is that that I think about a lot is that our, our processes and our systems are built for fee-for-service and not value-based care. Yeah. We got yeah. to work that out, right? Like you've got to be able to have, if we were tomorrow to go to a system whereby um, you paid for outcome, we wouldn't be ready for it. We wouldn't succeed at it. So all of this is just necessary, you know, necessary growing pains and they are painful. Yeah, but and I think it's 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 this idea of a uh, you know I'm not hearing a lot enough people talk about this, but it's like this idea of a portfolio of managing a portfolio of reimbursement. You know, we'll talk, we'll get into the Village MD stuff with you, and I'm going to come back to this topic. But if you think about like how this transition really takes place or how this endures, is how do you have a mix of fee for service, some value, some downside, some upside, some fully capitated, and how do you manage that bucket? Of ri- it's more complex, not less, but that's sort of I think the world we're all going to live in. And whether you're sitting from a retail vector or you're sitting it from an acute high acuity vector, you got to think that way. And to your point, you got to build all the infrastructure around that to be able to handle all those different strategies, as as you've seen firsthand. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'll tell you, it, it's one of these things where you know, every moment that I've, I've sort of been involved with this, and, and you asked me about Athena earlier, and that was a great experience for me. It was definitely not the experience I expected, but it was it was a good experience, which I think- There's most probably of, a few people could say that, Kevin, come on now. <laughs> well, and what I mean by that is, is that I was really wrapped up in the Boston bubble, you know, and and I I began to recognize that there was a lot going on out there that I just didn't have- window into. And, and so we talked about a lot of really important things, but the truth was that we didn't have the payment model to your point that would allow us to really get deeply into those things. And I started to get very frustrated with that. We would go from, so I became chief medical officer within the BIDMC system. I was at one of the community hospitals. We were trying to pull the community hospitals into the uh, pioneer ACO. Uh, We were building a new cancer center and, and, um, or at that center. So it was at that particular facility. So it was really good stuff. Um, But the more I got into it, the more I realized like we're going from one meeting where we're talking about driving heads in the beds and make sure that the MRI and the CT scans are spinning and that our ORs are falling. Boy, do we like elective cases to uh, the next one is like, hey, how do we think about managing a population such that we're preventing all of those things that I just mentioned previously? That's a you know, I'll, I'll misuse this word, kind of a schizophrenic way to to exist and very hard for organizations. And I've seen it characterized in a lot of different ways. It's like having a foot in each canoe type of thing. And it's it's hard because you're trying to drive your day business. It's almost like being a publicly traded company. I have those thoughts too. It's like you're trying to drive your day business and you're being evaluated based on on such. And yet you're trying to transform into what you believe is the future of healthcare. It's a really hard thing to do. Athena was great because I got out of the bubble and I was able to work with 
healthcare systems across the country, as big as Providence and Dignity, now Common Spirit, you know, uh, but as small as, and this is maybe equally, if not more important, Mission Health Partners out in Western North Carolina, like who were out there killing it because they had to. Um, so where we were talking about doing a lot of things, maybe in Eastern Massachusetts, they were actually doing them because they had to. And that was a great experience for me. You know, and I learned all the things like I wish I could, you know, say something that's really, really insightful here. But I learned all of the things that we all know, which is like there are themes that cut across all of this. But boy, is it local and it's local when it comes time to contract and it's local when it comes time to delivering care. So I got a good education in just, see, you know, lifting my head up and seeing what was happening out there. You know, I want to turn to the second half of the interview and talk about Walgreens a little bit. Um, but I want to hit your comment about the Boston bubble because I think it's a great one, which is, you know, those of us that are in the Boston bubble, you know, I say this all the time is like, you know, if you never left the community, you would think healthcare is just all like this. <laughs> and to your point, when you get outside of the community, you start realizing how different the healthcare environment is in some of these communities. Uh, across this country, you know, the North Carolina example is a very good one. Um, let alone all the other things that go on. Um, you know, we're afforded a unique opportunity because of the network that we work with that we see sort of all different communities across the country and what goes on. And it really affords a different kind of lens into sort of the activity. I always, I don't want to, I, I hate saying this, but I will say it on in the podcast, which is like sometimes I, I you know, I call Boston kind of like the fake healthcare market because, like, you know, it's, it's so, it's so kind of like perfectly coiffed and everything is kind of, you know, we have a lot of issues, it obviously still, but there's a lot of goodness in this market um, that we are doing a lot of the right things um, and have pretty good outcomes for the most part. But there's also some challenges still, as we've seen with COVID. But be that as it may, you know, switching over to Walgreens. You know, you think about just, I'm just sort of listening to you, you know, you had such a formative experience going over in a single payer system, seeing it on the ground with sort of the, the, the Italy experience, you sort of saw sort of the emerging models back to the, the nice Boston market, uh, whether it's AQC or Pioneer, et cetera, like on the ground with the healthcare provider, one of the larger systems here. Um, then you went to Athena, saw multiple physician markets and health system markets, and then you end up at Walgreens as the chief medical officer. And I'm curious in your experience, how long has that been so far? Yeah, I started at Walgreens in January of 2020. So, so look, my first phone call with the CDC was on the 26th of February. Most people will say that the pandemic hit on Friday, March 13th, uh, because that's when we really started seeing widespread lockdowns and school closures and whatnot. But for me, it was February 26th, where I went into that briefing phone call thinking that this was not a big deal. Uh, I raised my hand and say that I totally had misunderstood the severity of what was happening. Even though overall, this is a gentle pandemic. I hate to say this, but you know, I, I, we could almost get into it. You know, this is a dress rehearsal that we have all failed miserably, right? We've all forgotten our lines. In fact, we're working off different scripts. Um, but I, but I came in and it was baptism by fire, but it was great fire because I think what happens is, and this is sort of my, my third crisis, the first being in Italy where a, a propane train blew up and, and we, we were involved in taking care of a bunch of patients from that. And then the Boston bombing. Now this one, it, it brings people together 
and it builds relationships. And I think leadership is about strong relationships. And I think it's about trust and respect. And, and those things, you don't get to buy those. You have to earn those. And, and so to a certain extent, I can't think of a better way to enter into Walgreens than in this way. I wouldn't wish us another global pandemic, but but it was a really good way because I got uh, to work very closely with the organization and I got to see what it was made of. Right. And one of my biggest concerns maybe in joining the company is like, hey, this is a big retail pharmacy. How, you know, it's it's Achilles heel is that it's deeply operational. Can it innovate? And and then if so, like, can we innovate and transform, which is really hard to do and, and you know, cut to what we were discussing before, especially in a public market, right, where we have to report out every three months. And, you know, we were able to take on testing. And that was, Keith, really a, a, a fascinating experience for me. You know, there was a lot of complexity around, like, what testing should we even embrace? But we had never done testing. And so we had to stand that up. And, and people won't see it because, of course, this is a podcast, but there's a whiteboard behind me that you right now are looking at. And I would whiteboard the workflow out with the team. And we were working in a, in one place in in, in just near headquarters in, in, uh, uh, Illinois. And, and, uh, and then as soon as we got that right, the scale of it was just mind numbing, you know, it would be like, okay, the next meeting we had, you know, four days later, we're at 87, you know, locations, you know, the next meeting we're at 300. So this is, this is a company that, that is deeply embedded in community and can do really important things. And it's not easy to transform a company that is, you know, has, over a hundred years steeped, you know, now 120 years steeped in, in, in the retail pharmacy space. But yeah, that's how I got to Walgreens. And I'm happy if, if you're interested to go into it. I'll let you take, what are you interested in? The question, I guess, is, you know, we, we, we've had a bunch of folks, we've asked a bunch of folks about the retail threat in terms of, you know, when you think of you, you think of CVS, you think of Walmart, even Dollar General's throwing its hat in the ring lately, or, or at least saying it's going to how real is that threat from your mind? Is it, you know, if you if you think about your activities and you think about even, you know, even COVID and all the things you had to do around testing, let alone vaccine deployment and everything else like that, is that, and then also talk maybe a little bit about Village MD and, and how bullish you guys are on that in terms of that partnership and investment. Was that a real threat that health systems, payers and other delivery organizations should be worried about? Or is it much more of a, kind of coopetition partnership model that you think will will emerge itself over time? That's yeah, a really good question. I I don't think of it necessarily as a threat as much as inevitable. And what I mean by that is big other big lesson from working in Italy is if fee-for-service and its volume are all about the healthcare system and the specialist, then as you move towards you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, value-based care, risk, what, you know, whatever, whatever. Term. Let's just call it coordinated care. <laughs> coordinated care. All right, cool. But, but there's got to be a payment component to it, right? Like, so, so the, I, I get that. It, it, it's less about the healthcare system and, you know, and, and the specialist as much as it is really about the primary care doctor in the community. And that's what I saw in Italy, 
right? Like they were exceptionally good at taking things out, taking care of things outside of the hospital in the way, in a way that we could never have imagined and, and made fun of. I mentioned that earlier. I'll just give you what at the time we just thought was just foolishness, but makes perfect sense, which was that at the time, and this was back in early 2000. So, you know, 2002, 2003, they had recent medical school grads who were waiting to start their residencies who were on the ambulance service and would go out for certain chief complaints, like for example, shortness of breath. And, and then they, they take a look at those folks and be like, Oh, you know, this is really mild CHF and, you know, we can increase the, the, the patient's medications, you know, the dose of Lasix. I don't want to get too technical. And doing that sort of under the guidance of a, of a, of a physician. And, hey, this person, you know, looks pretty good. Vital signs are good. We're going to increase. And we're going to have them follow up tomorrow with the primary medical doctor. Like, we just were like, we'll just take them to the hospital. <laughs> and so those patients, 100% of those patients end up in our emergency department, for the most part, you know, just sort of directionally speaking. And they were able to decrease that number significantly because sometimes they would get there and say, hey, this person needs to be in the emergency department. And so I just think that driving care in the community, as you start to think about changing the payment model, is inevitable. So is it a threat? Well, it depends, I guess, where you're sitting. Where I'm sitting, no, I think it, of it as, as sort of the logical next step. Now, we have barriers, right? Like, as I've already mentioned now, I think a couple of different times that we are steeped in retail pharmacy and transforming a company is, you know, not a small deal. So I don't mean to trivialize this in any way, but... I think that people becoming more comfortable getting care in community. Let's start there, okay? And I think the pandemic has, without question, put wind in the sails of getting care in community and driving, let's call it digital health, okay? I I think it's too myopic to call it telehealth because there's more to it than that. And and so I, I think there is a wonderful opportunity here to transform the way we think about delivering primary care in community in a way that's coordinated with healthcare systems and specialists. So for us, that's an opportunity. For others, I guess that could be a threat, depends where you're sitting. And for the payers, again, it's all very local, but for many, it makes sense to want to see that type, those types of services coming together. Yeah. And, you and you know, we love guests like you who have these different lenses, right? So you had kind of the big health system experience and you saw a lot of the independent practices. Now you're seeing the retail. I mean, you're seeing every part of the chain for the most part, with the exception of sort of the payer yet. And well, you're still young. So <laughs> we'll see where it goes. But when you think about that, I think your point about care in the community is a really good one. And then the, the question we've asked as a follow on that when we start thinking about the retail players and you think of, let's just take you and CVS, you know, I've asked a lot of health system leaders this question, which is you end up bifurcating a market in each one of the sub-regions by allegiance to those specialists and those networks. So does Walgreens have a network in say Michigan, because I know you do, with say a certain set of health systems. And then CVS has a certain network set up with a similar set of services with a different set of health systems. Do you think that's what's going to happen region by region is if both your model and CVS's model, let's just leave it at those two for now, even though there's others, sort of start producing more in the community? Wow. Yeah. It's funny. I have, I have not been asked that question. Keith, how do you like that? You put me on the hotspot here. 
And so I want to think about it for a second. Yeah, I, 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 I see where the where the basis for that question comes from. And I think I'm not I'm, I'm somewhat somehow reluctant to say that we're going to divide the country up between CBS and, and Walgreens. That doesn't feel like an authentic, like honest answer. But I think to a certain extent, we are seeing the consolidation of healthcare, And this may be and this is the point I think you're driving towards is yet another extension of what that might look like. And my take on it is. And, and so I'll pull back and kind of put on the Walgreens kind of view here is that this is happening, right? Like this train is leaving the station and we've got to be, we've got to be on board. I have advocated very hard internally and, and, and even externally for becoming progressively more of a provider organization. Um, I think that that makes sense. I'd like to see us, you know, not, you know, take think of of risk as as being a wet sponge. I'd like to see us take the sponge at a certain point, not the drops that are offered periodically when you judiciously squeeze those those out. And again, you know, you have to, you have to build infrastructure that can support that. So that means that our pharmacists have to be able to drive cognitive clinical services, not just you know be in the business of filling scripts. And, and we're aggressively going after that. Uh, but we also have to make investments that that allow for us to build a different model. And that was the investment in Village MD. The, the idea being that, you know, I, I can just tell you this from personal experience that anytime we, when I was back at the healthcare system, and I practiced there for 19 years, I said I was there for 16. I actually, um, while I was at Athena, I was actually still seeing patients, just, just no longer a part of the administration. Um, so in my, in, in my, time there, I really began to understand how important it is to really own the premium as much as possible so that you can drive as much care as you would like. And so I've been advocate, advocating for us to do that. And while there, I, I, I saw, hey, anytime we put together primary care in pharmacy, only good things happened. I, I, I chaired the utilization review committee at the hospital. And I was amazed by how often we had very tight plans, or at least from our point of view, seemingly tight plans should qualify it. And only to fall apart because medication management was a disaster. You know, if you do nothing else, just get med reconciliation right. What do I mean by that? Well, we're obligated at the time of discharge to give everyone the medications that largely they have at home. Now they don't know the difference between Coumadin and Warfarin, okay? And so it was just a complete mess. Um, I even got into the homes of patients and, and watched that. And, you know, the, you know, the, the, the mind-boggling, numbing experience of seeing a ton of bottles and people making no sense of them. And, and so, you know, I just really believe that anytime you get medication, or I'll, I'll say it a different way, anytime you put together primary care and pharmacy thoughtfully, it drives better outcomes. And, and then, you know, what I'd love to see is our pharmacists who I think we, we always talk about how well-respected pharmacists are and how they're immediately accessible. They're not as accessible as people would like because they're often, you know, busy doing something else. I get that. Like I'm going, I'm going to own that, 
But as we transition them or that type of work away from them and allow them to be more available to people, I think that that is an exceptionally valuable experience because people like them uh, just a little bit less than nurses, but a lot more than doctors. And um, they're accessible and they're deeply knowledgeable. These are like, you know, these folks have deep experience. They're completely underutilized. We have to do better and we will. And so that's what we're we're trying to drive towards. And I think this mechanic, I mean, you bring up such a good point. This we've been we've been doing some work recently around what we call next generation pharmacy and kind of looking at the inpatient environment, the outpatient ambulatory environment, the retail environment, the PBM especially. And the one thing that's come up is exactly what you just said, which is ultimately, and I think you added a really interesting principle with this primary care point, Pete, too, but but who owns meds management? If you're going to end up moving to value, if you're going to end up trying to manage chronic complex patients, what's the way through on that? The way through on that is really, to your point, med adherence and, and med rec and getting that correct. If you think about the other, tech, I, I bring up a tectonic shift a lot on this, is where is all the PBMs going? All the PBMs going to go into the payers. Where does all sort of the direction and pricing and understanding of all that, it's sitting with a lot of the payers now. And then if the retail players like you all get involved, where does that leave the health systems? Where does that leave the practices if they're going to ultimately also take on risk and try to manage chronic and they don't, have, they don't own any of that infrastructure or any of that formulary build? or any of the ongoing management, I think that falls right back into your guy's lap, which I think is really fascinating. And then to your point, when you add primary care to that, does the coordinating principle go back to the community? And then the health systems in some of these communities really are just catchers of what falls out of that. I don't know if you have a reaction on that. Oh my gosh. Trying to think (laughs) how to react to that, but yes. Here, I would say this. Anyone listening to this podcast right now, tell me what meds your spouse, child, parent are on. Right now, I need it. Now imagine you're in the emergency department and I'm the physician asking you for that. I need it. I'm going to guess that everyone, I I, I might keep go with everyone, can't answer that question for me. I can't answer that question for you for my mother. I can tell you... (laughs) I can tell you that like I try to track it, you know, my, you know, we say this, you know, like that uh, people change, but relationships never do. My two older sisters are the stewards of my mother. You know, I kind of help navigate, but, you know, they, they'll assist and take her, you know, and my mother's healthy, but they'll take her to doctor's appointments. And then I don't always get the update on the med change. You know, I, I just say like, we should go out and try to crush that, um, that, that just become the true North of, you know, it's not sexy, right? Like it's not the type of thing that anyone would be like, wow, let's go out and 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 solve the problem of med reconciliation. But let me tell you, if anyone ever did it, it could greatly improve the way we deliver care. And it'd be really helpful to even these people listen to this podcast, because now you could go to an app and click on it and you could tell me exactly the meds that your spouse, child, or parents are on. But logically, um, think, that that should sit in your infrastructure, given everything that you all have. Well, I was about to say, and I think we get permission to own that. And this yeah. is kind of an important point. It's a great point. Yeah, all right. Totally. Like, I, this, this is an important point that I think we should get into. And that is that I do remind people that we get permission 
to do certain things and drive certain services. And that can change as we embed primary care into our, you know, as we embed co-located sites into our pharmacies, you know, our, the permission changes, but we do not get permission absent primary care to be the quarterback of the team, right? That is the healthcare provider. We are a member, an important member. They like us. They want us on the team, but we are not, we don't get permission to be the, the whole team. And we could change that over the course of time as we add more providers. But the same thing is true is like, we get permission, I think, to go out and solve that problem. And, and that would make perfect sense for people. And so I do think about that a lot and, and, and would love to go after that at some point. I think it's very doable. Um, and, and I think it would be very good both financially and for outcomes, which is kind of what you need. You need both. Yeah. But, but you also get that permission to your point about your investment and you know building buildings next to retail locations that look like Village MD offices that all of a sudden you do have that connection, right? That's the idea. I mean, that that's exactly what we want to do. And if the idea is that you want to become more of a provider organization that's going to get higher on the food chain of that premium, that's exactly what you have to do. And, you know, there was a time when we did not get vaccines and pharmacies. It's about 12 to 15 years ago. I don't even remember it, quite honestly. And, and I am older than that. I should. I think that's the, that's more a sign of my brain than it is, you know, I, I should be able to remember that, but but now people very comfortably go, conveniently go and and get their vaccines and now testing. I, I think it, it it's not a you know that's a short putt to get to my care, and and so I think that's exactly the way we have to look at this, and then we have to figure out like well how does it fit into the healthcare system so that it doesn't be become yet another silo. We don't need any more of that. But how does it play like a really important role in community? You know, that last mile of care matters. We used to pull our hair out, you know, when I was at BIDMC to figure out how to get connected to those people. Well, we are connected to those people and they trust us. So this just feels like synergy and it feels like it can come together. And I'd like to have people think of it differently than, you know, a threat to their their organization in the future and figure out, like, well, how does it actually become, you know, a, a tailwind? Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I took away a bunch of things from this chat. I, I got one last question for you so we can close up here because we're getting the time. And to your point, we could have run another hour, I think. Uh, and the dogs, the dogs were pretty quiet, which was great. You know, I took away this idea of community care. I took away this idea of primary care plus meds management and the unique place that, that you all sit in that. And then the question, I guess the punchline for me and, and maybe for everybody listening is, you know, we've heard so much of kind of all in on the healthcare vision, all out, you know, kind of cold feet with a lot of the retail and the tech players over the last couple of months. You know, where does where does Walgreens sit in this? You got new leadership, I believe. So how do you think like, you, are, is this, you know, obviously invested in Village MD, you're doing a lot of things with the vaccine and COVID. Like, are you guys all in? Like, is this, I mean, when you get sitting there and you've been there for a little bit now, are you feeling like, wow, this, this company, and it's a big company, it's international, it's public, all the different things it has, you know, we all in here on this vision. Yeah. You know, we do have a new leader in Roz Brewer and Roz um, is, has been really strong. I have to say she joined us in March of this year and has been really strong. And, and she uh, has served to really focus our thoughts around what our future ought to be. And yes, we are we are headed in this direction. 
I think I think it's clear that um, in the context of the pandemic and everything that's been positive about what we've been able to do, and in the challenges of our business and and where we need to go, it's pretty clear that this is where we're headed. And yes, I, I expect that we will continue to sort of just gain momentum. Now we're we're going to do that in in the way that you would expect, right? Like, how do you eat an elephant? And it's one bite at a time. This is going to be a process, kind of. You know, maybe we can end a little bit where we began, which is this is not going to be an event where all of a sudden, you know, you wake up and go, there it is. <laughs> They're a healthcare organization. Wow. Didn't see that one coming. It's going to be a process. And I don't think it's necessarily one that's particularly complicated um, in terms of strategic concept, uh, but it's all in the execution. Um, and in the patience that we have to get there. So, um, you know, I'm, I am doggedly committed to the concept. Um, it really has been an expression of my career and where I've gone. And I think a lot of people are scratching their heads, even when I left Harvard Medical Faculty Physicians, Harvard, you know, Harvard Medical School to go out and do what I'm doing. But, but I like this stuff. I think it matters. And I want to be a contributor. You know, I, I, I know that, you know, maybe I, we don't get there all the way. But I, I want to be a part of what this thing could become when it's ready. And that'll take time. Well, this has been great. And we appreciate your time and your insight. And I think it's always fun to, you know, everybody sees the headlines of all the retailers and what they're doing and this, that, and the other thing. But I always love really sitting down, let alone with a friend, and examining sort of reality. Um, but Kevin, I can't thank you enough and uh, appreciate you coming on board today. Thank you, Keith. All right. Take care. All right, well, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. You can find Keith Figlioli on Twitter and on LinkedIn. You can find me there as well. I'm Tom Salemi, Editorial Director of Device Talks. Join us next time. We'll have another great episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders waiting for you.